episode, we have our environmental ethics group with Jessica, Sarah, and Jay, Jessica being me. Today, we are going to be talking about our own institution, Emory University, and how we handle the climate crisis. On campus, Emory University's sustainability initiatives include the Water Hub and biofuel-powered shuttles. The Dobbs Common Table has also put out some sustainability initiatives to decrease food waste and reduce resources used in preparing food. We have brought in some speakers to catch the various perspectives within the Emory community. First up, we have Claire McCarthy, a leader in Emory Climate Talks, as well as the author of their article, President Femmes. We're still waiting on action for March 2022. Typically, Emory Climate Talks attends the United Nations Conference of Parties, which is an annual conference in which countries from around the world come together to discuss the current climate crisis and progress. Emory Climate Talks has a blog, seminars, podcasts, to educate Emory's community about the current climate situation and things on campus regarding climate change. While reviewing Emory Climate Talks, we came across this article written by Claire McCarthy about President Fenves signing two initiatives to take action, yet to no prevail. This has made apparent, apparent by Emory's OSI, or Office of Sustainability Initiatives. Today, we are speaking with Claire to get an update on the situation, understand what this experience was like for her, and learn why she put so much effort into improving efforts to combat climate change on campus. Just to get started, do you want to introduce yourself and say like why climate change and working towards sustainability is um, so important to you? So my name is Claire. I'm a senior and I'm studying environmental science and minoring in community building and social change. And um, I think that climate change is so important because it's not just um, like an environmental, like ecological and natural science issue, but it's truly a social justice issue that um, will have the greatest impacts on historically marginalized communities who have contributed to the issue the least. Um, that's how I got introduced into climate change. I first learned about it um, like as a social crisis and um, sort of about that inequity that I mentioned. And as a high schooler, when I learned that, it made me feel really guilty because um, like I'm a like pretty privileged American, um, like living in a generally climate safe area, um, but also like contributing so much to global emissions through um, my own lifestyle. Um, so started out feeling pr pretty guilty about that. But then at Emory, I've been able to connect with um, climate activists on campus and like channel my guilt into like more productive action. That's really interesting. I've never really thought about it as like a social crisis. Um, it's a very cool point of view. Um, so what was your motivation for writing the article? Um, so my main motivation was frustration. Um, I am one of the leaders of the Emory Climate Coalition. And since uh, spring of 20 spring of 2021, we've been running a climate action campaign where we're basically trying to get Emory to commit to stronger climate action and just make um, like sustainability and climate action part of our general campus culture. Um, and so fall of 2021, we were able to successfully convince President Fenves to sign on to two um, climate action pledges. So the first one is called the Race to Zero, and it's a global network of um, universities and other institutions who have committed to achieving net zero by 2050 at the very latest. Um, and then the second um, 
agreement he signed on to is called the Climate Leadership Network, and that's for um, American universities whose presidents are um, like prioritizing climate change and curriculum and research and um, like transparently reporting our progress towards net zero emissions. Um, and so he signed onto those documents, which was really great. Um, we were super excited. We thought that climate change is actually going to be um, receiving more attention at Emory. But soon after that meeting, we realized that wasn't actually the case. And um, we just didn't really hear much from President Benvez throughout the rest of that semester or even the following semester um, when during the meeting we had with him, he had said he was gonna like communicate about um, the importance of um, addressing climate change to like, um, like the Emory community. And so we expected that to happen and it did not. And um, we had meetings with other decision makers like provost and office of sustainability initiatives. And through these meetings, we just realized that it is um, really difficult to actually um, strengthen sustainability measures at Emory. There are a lot of um, barriers, mainly funding. Um, so I think that my article was generally motivated by that frustration and realizing that um, like the, the signing onto commitments and um, you can sign as many like as many papers as you want um, and that's easy but actually implementing is difficult um, and I also hope to I guess sort of like spur President Femmes and other decision makers into um, taking real action. Definitely yeah um, so what's the current status of the plan to achieving net zero emissions and transparent progress reporting that FENBIS promised to work on? A lot of progress has been made this semester, which is really exciting, but we've also faced a lot of challenges this semester. So it's been a mixed bag. Um, we faced a lot of confusion and lack of communication around the Office of Sustainability Initiatives budget. Um, so I won't get too much into it because there was quite a lot of drama, but essentially for a couple of months, um, starting at the end of summer 2022, OSI thought that their budget was being cut significantly, including really important programs like their intern program. And so we engaged in a lot of advocacy to raise that to the attention of the Emory community. And we started planning our climate strike, which was going to be focused around um, like restoring funding to OSI. But then we heard like two days before the climate strike and that was like over a month after we had heard that OSI's budget was being cut. Um, we got new information from the administration that their budget was actually not being cut and everything was fine. Um, and there we had believed that the OSI was be budget was being cut just because of a um, lack of communication and a misunderstanding. Um, and so we, we have our own hypotheses about what really happened, but um we'll never know for sure because the administration doesn't really like um admitting to anything or, um especially when it comes to funding um it's a pretty touchy subject but um so we're not completely sure whether the um the funding cut was actually going to happen or not um or if it was just a miscommunication but either way it's very clear that sustainability is not a priority at Emory or if it had been like something like this never would have happened because it would have been like at the forefront of campus attention and a lot of um, just like a lot of work would have been given to it. Um, so that's that's one challenge we face this semester, but luckily OSI's budget is now okay. They have the funding that they need to employ all their interns and their 
um, graduate fellows for right now and run their important programs. Um, right. But as for the implementation of the plan, that has been going pretty well because uh, one criteria of the plan is to, or one criteria of the Climate Leadership Network is to have the Climate Action Task Force. Um, and that task force is going to like guide the uh, the writing of a climate action plan for Emory. And so um, this whole effort has fully been like, driven by OSI and we've set up a task force that has um, students and faculty and staff and even some alums and community members um, who are like experts in a certain aspect of climate and the environment and they're contributing um, all of their um, insight to the um, writing of the climate action plan. And we've also run, we've started running community conversations and those are um, discussion style sessions that are open to anyone at Emory and they can give their input on um, like what should be included in the climate action plan. Um, but I wanted to reiterate again that these efforts have been led by OSI so we haven't seen as much um, we haven't really seen too much um, like investment from the administration but things are progressing which is good to see and in your article you wrote about um, that you you said you think Emory should add a sustainability module to the first year course ECS 101 um, what do you think would be the most important to include and teach first-year students? I think that just um, educating students about like all the, the the opportunities to get involved in sustainability that Emory has would be really great. Um, OSI has a multitude of resources from like the education gardens to the zero waste hospitals program, um, and outside of OSI, there are so many um, campus organizations. Um, working on different aspects of environment and the climate crisis. And we have like more activist type groups like the one I'm involved in and also more um, ecological oriented groups that um, like lead hikes and um, like bird identification walks. Um, so there really is something for everyone. And I think throughout the whole sustainability module, it should be emphasized that um, the climate crisis and environmental issues are really intersectional. So a lot of times students think that you have to be an environmental science major to be involved in this type of work, but um, these issues really impact and will impact and currently do impact like people everywhere, no matter what your interest or background is, and we need people with all types of skills and expertise working on this. And also we saw in your article that Emory removed the senior director of utility and strategy position last year. Do you know if that position has been reinstated or what do you hope this person can achieve? Uh, that is something we are still concerned about. Um, so right now, Campus Services is trying to hire a sustainability engineer to sort of replace that position. So the sustainability engineer will be really helpful in developing, um, like tracking Emory's greenhouse gas emissions, but it is lacking sort of this advocacy piece of the role that um, the resilience director had. Um, so the resilience director role, um, one of their primary responsibilities was to work with like Georgia Power um, to shift Emory's energy consumption to more um, renewable sources and just like 
work on um, different campus strategies in general to sort of, sort of um, shift that consumption towards greener energy. Um, so we are worried that the engineer doesn't really have um, an advocacy partner role and they will be like more on the technical and tracking side, which is also important. Um, so that is something that we're still trying to push for. Um, and then how do you think you've left your mark on the movement here at Emory? So I would hope that I have um, helped to build like a model of climate activism that will continue beyond um, my graduation in the spring because uh, I guess it sort of got started during um, my freshman year, but like before my freshman year, there was not a very um, strong um, like campus culture around climate activism at Emory. So um, the fall of my freshman year was the first time there was a climate strike at Emory. And now there has been one every semester. Um, and um, the Emory Climate Commission, which I helped to found is a network of Emory's three climate-oriented um, student organizations. So we have um, like developed a relationship network where each of us has like, sort of a different perspective on climate work and all um, like contributing to each other. So yeah, just overall, I hope that I have contributed to the mission. And what is a piece of advice you'd give to students looking to advocate for sus for sustainability at Emory? Um, I guess sort of similar to what I said before that. This isn't just work that environmental science majors can do, um, even though I happen to be an EMBS major, but we need like all types of skill sets and backgrounds. And I also was a little bit hesitant to, um, I guess, enter an activism oriented space because I'm pretty introverted and don't really like being um, like the, the loud person in the group, but um, like all types of skills and personalities can be really valuable. And there's a lot of like behind the scenes work that um, important is there any final statements regarding the climate that you'd like to tell those who are listening I think that we have um like centered a lot when we um, present to campus decision makers is that emory is a really privileged and well-resourced institution in a region that's going to be really climate vulnerable like atlanta is seeing a, a huge increase in extreme heat we just think that Emory should use its role in this um, type of region um, to like really be a sustainability leader and to like help out the surrounding community as much as possible. Thanks, Claire, for that assertive and informative conversation. There's a lot that goes into climate policy that isn't transparent to the student body. We want to know that how the institution we pour our funds into is doing its part to protect the longevity of the only Earth that we have. Next up, we have Jay with Mr. Gunderson, a professor and founding chair for environmental sciences here at Emory. His passion and interest in the climate and the environment stems from his past with his undergraduate and graduate studies in botany, as well as his doctorate in environmental engineering. Let's hear more about him and his opinions on Emory's relation with climate action. Um, hi, Dr. Gunderson. Um, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, so yeah, first, uh, first of all, I just wanted to hear a bit about your background. Um, you know, saw you, you know, had studied at University of Florida. Um, you know, I have some other experiences working at like the National Park Service. Um, you know, uh, also your career in academia at University of Florida in Emory. Um, and I also, you know, saw some of um, the research you did and some of the organizations you're a part of. So I um, was wondering if you could, you know, touch on those and kind of your 
um, career history. I uh, was born and grew up in South Florida, uh, and I got interested in ecology during a um, summer biology program uh, in, it used to be called junior high school, now it's called middle school, uh, where my mother sent us off to, so we weren't around the house in the summer, but go do something in school. And um, the instructor would take us out to different places in, in the environment and you know, look at fish and birds and all kinds of things. And, and I, I think that kind of got my interest in, in the kinds of environmental changes that were happening in Florida, you know, in the, in the 20th century. And uh, so I, I continued that when I went to University of Florida and had to choose a major. I, I started off thinking I wanted to major in political science and become an environmental lawyer. And I took a course in political science and hated it. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. So I switched my major to ecology. An undergraduate degree, and then I stayed on and got a master's degree um, studying uh, aspects of uh, ecology and changes in um, South Florida, where I was from. And then, then I went to work after I got my master's degree. Um, I was lucky enough to get a job with the U.S. National Park Service, and I spent 10 years mapping and studying uh, relationships between water and hydrology and uh, other issues um, that uh, the park has to deal with in greater Everglades. And then I um, decided that in had a, I don't know, early midlife crisis and decided to go back to graduate school and get a PhD. It quit my federal job, which you know, was a permanent job at the time. I used my retirement savings <laughs> to, to go back to school. And for a couple of weeks, I was going, like, what the heck did I just do? Uh, but no, it, it was all worth it. And I ended up um, get, uh, getting, getting my PhD on work that I'd started in, in South Florida and the Everglades National Park in terms of um, trying to figure out how all of the environmental problems that the park faces um, could be addressed and approached and uh, those sort of things. And, and then I worked there for a while on uh, an international project uh, that involved uh, looking at this, this idea of resilience, um, which is roughly defined as um, but it um, that that there are different forms that are different shapes or systems in the environment, and when humans interact with it, uh, you know we don't do away with the environment; we just change what's there. And it's this property of resilience that mediates that change between uh, uh, these different types of ecosystems that. that you know, some of which have existed here with people for a long time, and others, uh, new ones we've, we've created. And that led to, um, you know, the job opening came here at, at, at Emory to come and start uh, a department. Uh, and we started, it was the Department of Environmental Studies, but then it became Department of Environmental Sciences um, to um, give undergrads the opportunity to study this if they, if they want. 
And yeah, I wanted to touch maybe more on, you know, what areas of environmental science you're most passionate about. Maybe uh, talk about a bit about your, your research. Um, yeah, just like most the areas you're most passionate about. I guess the areas that, that I've always worked on um, is this these notions that how we understand the environment, which you gain by uh, doing research or doing experiments in the environment, gain an understanding about um, how how these systems are put together, how they work, what causes them to tick, so to speak, um, and um, how that understanding uh, is translated into uh, management actions and policies. Mm-hmm. That's really where I, I think I've done most of my work in terms of uh, um, you know, try, trying to translate from science to policy living in a different field, but it's a similar um, kind of area in terms of, uh, you know, when uh, the COVID pandemic broke out and there was a lot of discussion about what the scientific community knew about its origins, about its spread, and, uh, you know, different ways of containing it, masks and all these other things. And a lot of that was really mediated by um, uh, Anthony Fauci, you know, in terms of understanding what the science is saying and how that turns into practice. I'm not claiming to be anything like like Dr. Fauci, but uh, that's the kind of area that, that I work in. And then, yeah, I was wondering, you know, in your opinion, what's what do you think are some of the biggest problems facing um, kind of, yeah, what, what you research, like facing the... Uh, nature, the climate, the environment? I, I think the biggest uh, problem that we face is um, trying to develop and implement um, different uh, ways of uh, adapting and dealing with uh, climate change. I, I think, I mean, it's not just climate change, it's We've changed all other aspects of the environment. I call I refer to it as global environmental change, of which climate change is one piece, one part of that. I mean, we've changed water cycles. We've changed. We talked about in class nutrient cycles. We've changed, uh, uh, caused a loss of biodiversity, a loss of land use. uh, All all of these sorts of things um, in in terms of how humans have, have altered the environment. And, and so I, I think the biggest challenge is not how to undo those changes, but how do we adapt to them uh, in terms of, um, you know, is the world going to be warmer or wetter or drier? We, we don't really know. Um, you know, we have pretty good ideas about how, how those changes are going to come about at the global level. But then how those translate to, um, you know, the local areas that, which is where we operate and where we act is, is um, a, I think, the source of the biggest um, uh, challenges we face. And we're really, you know, caught up in these, controversies about what to do 
when I when I think what we need to do is just try some a lot of different things. <laughs> see mm-hmm. see what see what works. I mean the solar panels work on houses and electric cars the solution and all those things. I, I don't know if they are, you know, but I, I I think that we need to, you know, develop a whole lot of other ways of, of you know dealing with, uh, you know, the, the twofold problem of uh, fossil fuel use and, um, and knowing that a lot of those fossil fuels are going to run out at some point in time. Mm-hmm. The local changes and kind of like adapting locally. Um, you know, so I was wondering, you know, throughout your ten- tenure at Emory, um, did you experience, you know, any significant changes um, in like st- sustainability um, like, I guess has that affected like any of your work? Um, I guess yeah, just any like changes you notice throughout um, yeah your history at Emory. There were uh, when I, when I first came here, there were uh, there were a few a few big changes because Emory was going through a uh, period uh, where it was, as far as I know, a- after the original designs on the Emory campus, which were what, 100 plus years ago now. Um, but by the mid '90s, the president, the president, had commissioned a master plan uh, for uh, Emory University in terms of where buildings could be built and what green spaces would be preserved and uh, uh, other aspects like that. And that's when a lot of the central part of campus was closed off to cars, and you know the, um, the focus was on uh, alternative. Forms of transportation, those kinds of things, um, and then uh, the other, as as part of that uh, planning process, there was kind of a building boom in the late '90s, early 2000s, I think. And um, during during that, there was when I think a lot of these ideas of sustainability were first taking hold. In that um, buildings were beginning to be built uh, according to these um, sort of green standards. It's called LEED, uh, uh, leadership in energy and environmental design. I think I saw like the sign outside, um, like in the hallway there. They have like those yeah, this is certification. A, yeah, yeah, this is a bronze certification. And they have it's kind of like Olympic medals, you know. That, there are the bronze and then silver and gold and platinum or something in terms of these degrees of certification. Um, so that's been really great. And, and, and Emory is, you know, paid the extra money. I mean, those, those things cost money in terms of uh, the, those, at least in upfront costs of uh, constructing new things like uh, uh, energy flywheel, which recovers energy. Um, as part of the heating and cooling cycles. So you, you're always getting uh, rid of the air from the buildings and then taking in new air as part of the, to keep it fresh. But in doing that, you would you know, uh, send out uh, air that had either been heated or cooled, depending on the season that was in. And so you're really wasting energy that you know, by doing that, but they developed uh, systems um, over so it would recover that energy. So if it was in the winter time and the air inside was warm, it would 
recover that heat and keep it in the building, recycle it in the building. Right? Uh, and, and those kinds of building innovations were, uh, were really being put in place. Like, you know, you might think it's silly, but I, I think this is the only floor and the only place on campus where you can open the window. Oh, really? all, all the other buildings are sealed up. Don't open the windows, you know. Okay, I never noticed that. Yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that they, they think about in, in, in terms of these uh, these buildings, uh, where where the material comes from, uh, how do you become more efficient in the use of energy, so lights and things that turn off when you walk in and out of little little things like that 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 do add up over time, you know, and do conserve. Mm -hmm. Things like the water hub that was built. Um, so in this period that I've been here since 2000, yeah, there have been a lot of really interesting innovations uh, that Emory has, has tried to do. Yeah, I remember you talked about the water hub a couple yeah. classes ago. So yeah, I mean, I mean it's really positive, and uh, Emory has gotten really um, uh, good good award. I mean, high awards for. The, focus on sustainability. I staying on top of memory, um, I was curious about your opinion, um, if there are any, you know, um, initiatives you think Emory should implement to further their sustainability efforts or, you know, if, or if you think Emory's kind of doing enough you know, right now. You can always do more. I, th I think they're, they're doing, uh, you know, they, they've done a lot that they could do more. I, I think one of the big things they could do would be to, uh, Hire a uh, environmental uh, person, environmental manager in operations, which is the, the uh, part of the university that oversees the design and building and management about what plants get planted and fertilized and uh, chemicals used and all kinds of things like that. Um, terms of, if you notice, but there's a big sewer replacement project going on way north end of campus by the president's house and your keys. And, um, you know, that was kind of done without, with minimal input from, from Emory. And um, so, except for one of the students um, who discovered it or I see that in, in terms of there are some really fascinating and rare plants and water, water forests, but there's no uh, no um, environmental manager to take care of that. I'm sure that those sorts of values and low water and Baker woodlands or, or these other areas that you know, are green space on campus that are, are managed in, in a sustainable way. Um, I, I, I think that's probably biggest things and then that way it's a commitment towards continuing these, these sorts of um, ideas. All right everyone let's give some appreciation for our speakers Claire and Dr. Gunderson for their contagious ambition and fascination for the climate. For you listeners here today it is important for you and me to acknowledge our privilege and utilize our leverage to savor every bit of the earth that we can. Simple things can solve some of our most complicated issues today. Throwing our own trash in the correct bins is one. Landfill goes to landfill, recyclables go to recycle, food goes into compost. 
Simple acts that take less than a second of your day can lead to monumental differences in the way we harm the earth. As members of the Emory community, it should be important to know how the institution uses funds from us for the better. Climate change is not just a me problem or Claire's problem or Dr. Gunderson's problem. It's our problem. Each and every one of us that inhabit on this earth. Think of one thing you could do today to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or pollution and do it. Thank you for chiming in, everyone.